Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of the Refuting Marx's Inconsistency, Capital and the TSSI series. This week we dismember the rotting corpse of the fundamental Marxian theorem in our close reading of Chapter 10 of Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marx's Capital. I've used a couple of tables and an equation or two as a graphic for this episode for those who don't have the book to follow along to. You can also listen to the unedited episode on YouTube where you can see the sections under discussion. If you'd like to comment, please do so on the YouTube channel as I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also, make sure to like, subscribe and share and you can join me on Facebook or Twitter too. This week, I have one new Patreon subscriber and one new PayPal subscriber to thank, Connie A and Julianne Orr. If you'd like to participate in the upcoming reading group of Mike McNair's Revolutionary Strategy, you can do so by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 an episode. This reading group is provisionally scheduled to start on Saturday the 5th of January at 3pm Eastern Standard Time or 8pm London Time. You can buy Mike McNair's book on Hulu for about £10 and there are PDFs floating around on the internet for free. Okay, to the discussion. Hello and welcome to part 12. Yes, you heard it, part 12 of the Refuting Marx's Inconsistency and the TSSI series. Today we've got a pretty full panel. We've just dropped off. Alex has gone into the chat to beat the crap out of anybody who disagrees with us. We have all the way from Sweden, newly married. He's got six children on the way. Emmanuel, say hello. Hello. <laughs> six children. Oh, my God. Where did you get around? With seven different women. Okay, Lexi. <laughs> That generous Swedish welfare state. What's up, everybody? Pay them to be pregnant. That's the way I like it. Now, we also have Puya, the mashed up Marxist. Hey, Tom, how's it going? Good, good, good. Okay, everybody. So we're within sight of the finishing line. It's lap 22 of the 10,000 meters. We're, we're chapter 10, and we're going to deal with the fundamental Marxian theorem. Now, this is another theorem by the famous Japanese guy, Akishio, I think, which the Schraffian school, I suppose we call them, or the simultaneists, Marxists, they wanted to be able to prove that labor is the sole cause of surplus value, of profit. And this is something that Andrew comes to the conclusion that this is something that absolutely doesn't hold. And this chapter, we're going to go and find out that it doesn't hold. So basically, once we introduce simultaneism, that's valuing our outputs and inputs simultaneously, we're going to run into very large problems with the whole basic foundations of those of those theories. Yeah. And another issue here is that they have this idea that a profit surplus is necessarily representing a physical surplus of some kind, which when you think about like what a Shroffian is and how they're like a non-marginalist, like kind of physicalist, heterodox, like post-Keynesian school or, or whatever, the very idea of a Shroffian Marxist, you have problems. One of the basic points of, of like Shroffianism or whatever is that you don't have to take any particular commodity as being the substance of value. You can work from ratios. So the concept of trying to prove labor value to be the substance of something when you don't need to choose a substance, the very idea of Shroffian Marxism, 
there's a lot of flaws here. But I guess the one thing I'll say for uh, Akishio and Marishima is that instead of just being like, well, we disproved Marx, but cool, we're just going to keep calling ourselves Marxists, they at least nominally are trying to reconstruct a Marxian intuition under the banner of Marxism. They fail. They don't do it right. If they did this right, you know, then we wouldn't need the classical labor theory of value. We could just use this because it captures all the same intuitions. Unfortunately, Andrew is going to show us why why that's not true. That was very good, Lexi. Anton. What? Yeah, you never, good, like... you never say good, You never well done, Tom. It's always well done, Lexi. This is, I know. This is five episodes of this now. I, I only just talked to you in now. private chat, But um, <laughs> what I really like about this chapter is that he sort of teases apart Marx's theory of exploitation from just any theory of exploitation. Right. Um, and he gets to the specifics because what he's going to attack here is, as you said, the FMT or the so-called fundamental Marxian theorem, the idea that we're in a corn economy, you receive five bushels of corn for wages, but hey, you produce 10 bushels of corn. So there's a profit there. The capitalist makes a profit of five because he only has to pay you five bushels of corn, but you produce more. And that's what the capitalist takes and sells on the market. And that's where, you know, surplus value comes from or profits comes from. And, and that is a theory of surplus extraction, right? It's, it's a theory of how private property could appropriate the fruits of labor of workers, sell it on the market and reap a profit. But it's not... It's not Marx's theory. It, it stands to reason that a surplus can only be produced if you produce more than it took to produce those stuff. So if the outputs are bigger than the inputs, that stands to reason. But the again, the thing here is if you have this sort of corn economy and you have corn wages and corn outputs, do you really need a labor theory of value? Do you really need Marx's theory of surplus value and Kleiman's going to say no those two those things are two very different things I think Kleiman also says that uh you know a physical surplus doesn't necessarily imply that there's exploitation of labor because if you do away with labor values you could say anything made this surplus you know that's a much better way to put what I was you know, trying to say. Yeah, yeah it's, it's important to provide a mechanism to specifically link the surplus to the exploitation. Mm -hmm. And that's right. the sole cause of the surplus, surplus value, is right. the exploitation of labor, not a third variable. Right. Again, we just want to stress that in Marxism, of course, and most people know this, but that, you know, we're not just talking about trans-historical wealth as it's existed throughout all economies. We're talking only about the emergent attempt to capture this form of wealth in value. It's specific to capitalism. And so it's not all that crazy to say that only labor creates this. It's, a, it's an historically specific phenomenon. This isn't a trans-historical political economy. This is only about capitalism. Okay, will we do a bit of uh, reading, a bit of quotes here? Let's get into it. What matters is the fact, which remains absolutely unchanged, that the surplus labor of workers is the unique source of profit when these terms are defined in the simultaneous dual system manner. This claim, which Akisho and subsequent authors have supposedly proved, was dubbed the fundamental Marxian theorem by Morishima. 
Andrew goes on, he, he talks about how this is like a really very important core part of the kind of Marxian school of, of economics. He also goes on here to talk about physicalism. The fundamental Marxian theorem serves an enormous ideological function within mainstream Marxian and radical economics. It has continually been claimed that Marx's exploitation theory of profit has been vindicated by one or another interpretation or theory that makes use of the FMT. These interpretations and theories have continually been hailed as embodiments of the very essence of Marx's theory, even though they arrive at his conclusions by somewhat different means. Thus, the FMT and the models from which it follows are also said to demonstrate that Marx's own value theory is superfluous, or worse, the Marxian theory of exploitation can be constructed quite independently of the labour theory of value. Profit depends upon the degree to which workers can be made to produce more output than they and the production process consume. This surplus approach can be developed without reference to Marx's problematic value categories, as in Schraffa's work. Okay. Anybody have anything to say about that? Yeah, well, there you go. It, it's the idea that what Marx is getting at is that the workers produce more than they're getting in wages. And that's the apparently the fundamental Marxian theorem. And if that's what you believe, then that is perfectly true. But But again, like my TLDR of this entire situation is... If you do not accept a difference between use values and value, if you do not accept that physical output, output of physical goods, stuff we need, i.e. use values, is different from value, if you don't think that there's a difference between those two, then go ahead and be a Sroffian. <laughs> if you do think that there is such a thing as use value and value being different things, th then that quote from Monjovi that profit depends upon the degree to which workers can be made to produce more output than they in the produ production process consume. That statement is nonsense if you think that physical output and value output are different things. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a real shame, actually, that, that this aspect of you know, the critique of political economy isn't getting across. When people stress that that this is a critique of political economy, what I think the cash value of what they're trying to say is that this is only about capitalism. <laughs> Don't try to make this a general theory. Marx does have a general theory of exploitation that he draws off of, you know, Corvée labor and Engels especially elaborates this. But value is not that theory. Value is a specific form of exploitation that is specifically spectral, does not ghostly, you know, it does not correlate with physical output. So much of his work is about the conflict between wealth, which doesn't have a, a util or a hedon or something you can add up for Marx. It's, you know, there's only different qualities. There's no abstract unit of wealth there for Marx as there is for Smith and Ricardo. For, for Marx, that the abstract unit of wealth, that's always going to be value. And that's always going to be something about capitalism. And so these models are trying to basically capture the old school political economy intuition that we're dealing with a, a process that's greater than capitalism in our models. Plus, if that were true, that exploitation happens w whenever you have more output than you have input, well, then productivity is exploitation by definition, right? Which would be really problematic. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> 
under capitalism, you know, productivity is all about, you know, how much value you can make per output. But, you know, we're just using the terms differently at that point. I, I disagree, even if we use the words in, to mean the, exactly the same thing, i.e. producing more output tomorrow than we did today. You mean physical output? Yeah, physical output, yeah. yeah. That's the thing. Marxist, when they're talking about productivity in capitalism, it's not talking about physical output. I know, but that, that's, that, that's right. my point. I'm yeah. glad you made that you made that distinction more more clear to our listeners maybe i was getting a bit ahead of myself but yeah it's if if you're a physicalist and you're saying that you, know, you don't need any values you don't need any prices all you need is corn and you can have a corn theory of exploitation whereby workers receive less corn than they produce then all productivity and anything that makes our standard of living better is equal to more profit and it's equal to more stuff and therefore more exploitation which is call it what you will it has nothing to do with how capitalism works or what marx is i think even remotely interested in i i have a greater problem with you know not using money in these things like it kind of takes oh, yeah. for granted that money is a veil and that it doesn't have us like a specific kind of role in the value form as a mediator. But again, they don't really believe in Marx's, you know, theory of surplus value. They don't really think of exchange value as being produced in the same way. So I guess these frustrations are just part and parcel to the school. And we should probably uh soldier yeah. on. But the point being is that the Marxian pedigree right off the bat is fucked. Okay. Lexi, you're getting a 10 minute penalty there for saying the words value form besides each other <laughs> hey, and, uh, in capital that shit's in capital yeah it is also who, who would have known that john bon jovi was such a sraffian very surprised <laughs> yeah. to know that yeah john mangiavi yes it's almost as good as living on a prayer yeah okay let, let, let's try and read a bit of this here this is andrew going to get into it yet if the theorem stated above the surplus labor of workers is the unique source of profit when surplus labor and profit are defined in a simultaneous dual system manner is false, then this line of argument collapses. I, will, I wish to show that this theorem is indeed false. So basically, he's going to find some situation where, you know, you have surplus labor and negative profit or even profit with no surplus labor. We're going to find some weird ass situations that fall out of simultaneous valuation. OK. Things go awry because of two elementary facts. Surplus labor is not the sole determinant of physical surpluses, which makes sense. And there is no such thing as the physical surplus. In light of these facts, there is simply no reason to expect a simultaneous fundamental theorem, a Marxian theorem, to hold true. The interesting and peculiar thing is that some simultaneist authors have tried to replicate Marx's conclusions in this case. In other cases, a discrepancy between their conclusions and his is construed as an error or internal consistency on his part. When, for instance, Ikishio found that his model contradicts Marx's theory that technological advances tend to lower the rate of profit, he did not try to resolve or conceal the contradiction, but simply declared that Marx's conclusion is impossible. Yet, although his model also contradicts Marx's exploitation theory of profit, and for the same reason, in this case, Okishio tried to patch up the problem and pronounced his effort a success. This is an uh, interesting point. Instead of always trying to replicate Marx's conclusions when faced with a problem, it's only in this case. And maybe that's because 
Well, I guess Kleiman goes into it, but I just want to say I find the kind of reasoning that Kleiman's about to do a little lazy and a little suspect, but probably 100% spot on. And we're going to get into why that is. Why are the two cases treated differently? I can think of no reason other than simultaneous authors would like one theory to be wrong and the other right. Marx's law of the tendential fall and the rate of profit has revolutionary implications. The abolition of economic crises requires the abolition of value production. And the idea that the technological advances tend to reduce profitability runs counter to physicalist intuition. The exploitation theory of profit, on the other hand, can seem to suggest the need for reform of an unfair distribution of income. And physicalists find it intuitively plausible or even obviously correct. So again, just imputing ideological and intuitional claims, but I think this is probably spot on. It's not the pedigree of the law of value versus the pedigree of the falling rate of profit because uh, the falling rate of profit has, you know, a longer history in the literature than like even the law of value. <laughs> it's it's not just that. It is it is like a theoretical selection. It's something somewhat intentional and I think it's probably closer to the point about intuition than the ideological point. But I also think there's an ideological component to why people feel that, you know, physical surplus and value surplus is going to line up. And it's also a good point about cherry picking because right. I think his point about here about Okishio is really spot on that, okay, Okishio believed that he had proved that you can't have the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall and at the same time have a labor theory of value. Okishio is going to say, well, all right, then screw the rate of profit thing. No one cares about that. But look, we can keep the fundamental Marxian theorem. We can keep the idea that profits are determined by the exploitation of workers. And Kleiman is saying, hey, but why pick one and not the other? That seems really arbitrary and unjustified. That's basically just cherry picking. I thought that was a great point. Let's go on to 10.2, the corn model. One reason why the exploitation theory of profit may seem obvious is that profit always exists under capitalism and surplus labor presumably always exists as well. Yet their mere coexistence does not imply that surplus labor is any source of profit, much less the unique one. After all, other things always coexist with profit too. Apples, birds, cliffs, etc. have continually existed throughout the capitalist epoch. It may be also be obvious to some people that the more surplus labor workers perform, the more profit there is. But this is likewise not the issue. The more heart attacks people suffer, the more death occurs. But heart attacks would be the exclusive cause of death only if, one, every case of heart attack necessarily resulted in death, and two, if it would be impossible to die except by suffering a heart attack. In precisely the same way, Surplus labour is the exclusive source of profit only if, in the aggregate economy, one, the performance of surplus labour necessarily results in profit in every case, and two, if it is impossible for a profit to arise except throughout the extraction of surplus labour. Okay, so that's pretty clear. I just wanted to uh, draw our attention to the way that he argues uh, in those first two paragraphs. I don't think it's a stretch to call... Andrew's argument style, like more or less analytical Marxist, like he's using fairly standard intuition pump in the first paragraph when he talks about apples, birds, and cliffs. You'll notice that it's an A, B, and C. That's normal 
for <laughs> analytical philosophers to do. And then in the second, he actually isolates two premises and preserves their logical relationship in order to make an argument. This is, you know, just standard logic, not the funny Hegelian kind, just just normal. It's this is that's a rock solid argument. Let's have a look here at what Joan Robinson has to say. Um, Mrs. Robinson. That's the walrus. <laughs> Are you making like some kind of misogynist point that she was a large woman? <laughs> wow. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Tom, you went too far there. Joan Robinson's uh, second edition of her essay on Marxian economics is apparently Shroffa made her life a lot easier. That's what's being said here. It's a good thing Shroffa came along. Otherwise, God, you know, making sense of Marx. Oof. That'd be impossible. <laughs> <laughs> all, the, all this use value and exchange value business. <laughs> what is that about, all right? Let's, let's read. Let's read the quote here. This is what she said in '67. Consider an economy consisting of capitalists and workers. The land is free, whose only product is Ricardo's corn. There are no prices of commodities, since there is only one commodity. The technical conditions of production determine the net product, that is, the harvest minus seed corn, the corn wage then determines the profit. The ratio of profit or surplus corn to the corn wage is the rate of exploitation. No, Shut no, up. it's the rate of productivity. Shut okay. up. Hold on. It's a quote. It's a quote, yeah. Manuel. I, I, I know, I'm just kidding. Mm. Now, it seems obvious that this analysis cannot be affected in essence by allowing for a variety of commodities. It does not alter the main line of argument. We shall see that the introduction of a variety of commodities does indeed affect the argument. However, a more fundamental question remains to the corn model case as well. Just how penetrating is this analysis of exploitation? So he's going to get into a bit of a shtick here about how intuitions can be wrong. This is like getting to the kind of idea that you were saying earlier, Emmanuel. Essentially what it is, is it, it's a response to Mrs. Robinson. Basically, it's saying that, okay, Robinson is saying profit is output minus inputs. The difference between the, the, the wages the wages are an input. It's an input cost. The workers need corn during their work year, during the season, in order to uh, not starve and in order to be able to work. So the difference between the output and the wages that they receive in corn, the corn that remains, that's going to be the exploitation. And Andrew here takes that, runs with that thought, and imagines a case where, all right, we, we have these um, fantastic workers. They don't need any corn at all in order to sustain themselves. So they don't need any wages. However, there is uh, something going on with the seed corn. They plant 100 bushels of seed at the start of the year, but then something goes wrong. So they don't get 100 bushels of corn out of those 100 seeds, but they get 99 and there are no wages paid. So... The outputs, that is 99, minus 100, that is minus one bushel. Thus, according to Mrs. Robinson here, there is negative profit. Not only that, but there is also the Marxist conception of surplus labor. So surplus labor, again, within the Marxist conception, the amount of work you perform 
over and above what is needed to reproduce yourself as a worker, right? So it's the amount of work that you perform over and above your wage. In this case, all work is over and above your wage since you have no wage at all. Your wage is zero. So there is obviously surplus labor going on, but we have negative profit. We have minus one bushel in profits and all labor performed is surplus labor since we have zero wages. Yeah, so just to summarize, you know, imagine a situation where you're paid nothing and you don't need to eat and you're working on the farm and the harvest fucks up. Well, surplus labor, but no profit. So you've done shitloads of weeding, you've been plowing, you've been picking, you've been doing all the watering, you've done everything. You've got less bushels at the end of it, so you don't have a profit. Like in that scenario, you know, you've got really what's missing there is price and value. Uh, Well, they have price, but it's not determined by the amount of labor. Like they have a price conversion factor. 99 multiplied by P, you know. Pooja, read this paragraph that I have highlighted here. Some simultaneous disagreeing with Robinson's contention that there are no prices here would prefer to express a profit in money terms. In this case, if the per bushel price of corn is P dollars before and after the harvest, since we are valuing the corn simultaneously, then the profit is 99 P dollars minus 100 P dollars. So you get a profit of negative P dollars. Once again, surplus labor has been formed, but physicalist simultaneous definitions imply that the capitalists have not gotten profit. P can be not be negative. That would mean that the capitalists would pay you to take the corn off their hands, which is clearly not the case. Thus, all simultaneous interpretations, the dual system interpretations, the NI and the SSSI come to the same conclusion. So basically, they're saying that, like, if people object that you, there is money in there, if you use money in, in this economy, you end up with the same problem. Yeah, the, the, this, this happens through the triple SI, the NI, the regular dual system one. No matter what, this essential logical dynamic is underneath. Then he moves on to uh, Dmitriev's example. So this is getting back to our 5P, 4P plus R, 4P. 4P times R. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. So let's see, he's talking here about a machine that produces 13 machines on its own. He says, imagine the year begins with 10 machines which produce 13 machines, at which point the original 10 machines have worn out and become unusable. The physical profit is 13 machines minus 10 machines, which is three machines. While the profit in money terms is 13p dollars minus 10p dollars is 3p dollars. If we value the input and output machines simultaneously, Thus, Dmitriev was right about the possibility of positive profit without surplus labor, if we accept any simultaneous interpretations definition of profit. So the first one he showed us where you've got labor, they were doing their harvest, we had labor performed with not, no profit, okay? And the second one we showed no labor and profit, okay? So totally messing up what the FMT would say. Like it's like the exact opposite <laughs> of what the FMT says. Yeah, but you know. he's being cited as uh, see this guy agrees with me, which is kind of funny. Like if these if all these like logical underpinnings are true, how many times has someone gone to someone that whose underpinning logic like directly refutes them to be like, see this guy gets it? Like how many times has that happened in this book? 
going back to the um, Steedman quote, which is very revealing to how at least Steedman thinks, but I think it's kind of revealing to the entire simultaneist physicalist thing. It's where he says that values and prices are two different coins and they're just different expressions of the physical output. That's the way I remember the Steedman quote. I can't find it right now. But that's the assumption that Kleiman runs with here, is that, all right, Steedman and other simultaneists believe that there's no real uh, reason to have a value theory or a price theory. They're all just different expressions of a physical surplus being produced. Okay, so let, let, let me just read the last little tiny paragraph here, that one, because I think it's a nice little one. Although these examples are highly unrealistic, they do refute the FMT. They also make it starkly clear that the performance of surplus labor and the production of physical surplus are two different things. The existence of one does not imply the existence of the other. This is one important reason why the FMT also fails in more complex realistic cases. Now, failure of the simultaneous dual system, FMT. Another key reason why the standard FMT fails is that the physical surplus is a meaningless concept once we take leave of the corn model world. Not only is the physical surplus of each good different, but some physical surpluses are always negative. The economy-wide physical surplus of any good or service is the amount produced minus the amounts used up in production and, and consumed by workers. Thus, if the coal industry produces less coal today than the amount of coal that it and other industries use up and the workers consume today, which is always possible if the coal they use up and consumes comes partly or wholly from pre-existing stocks, today's physical surplus of coal is negative. So yeah. there, there are many things in the economy where we, we basically run down. We run down the supplies of many different things. You know, this year's Nike runners get run down. Next year, they're not produced. You know, it's ubiquitous latest samsung or iphone they will produce for a year or two they will be run down okay so it is it's a core element of capitalist production lexi do you want to have a jump at this bit yeah, yeah let's do it it is fundamentally because of this simple fact that the standard simultaneous dual system fundamental marxian theorem fails when surplus labor and profit are interpreted as quote simply labor and monetary expressions of the physical surplus then either can be positive while the other is negative, given that the physical surplus of at least one good is negative. In order to see this, Steedman's terms need to be defined precisely. The simultaneous dual system interpretation of Marx's theory maintains that total surplus labor is the total labor time value of physical surpluses, and total profit is similarly the total price of the physical surpluses. Note that these definitions are simultaneous. The same per unit values and prices are attributed to the coal uses input at the start of the period and coal produced at the end. Thus, if we have a two commodity economy in which the physical surpluses of the two goods are one and 10, while the labor time values of the goods are 55 and five, then total surplus labor is math 105. And if the goods money prices are 54 and six, then the total profit is math 114. So, yeah, they don't equal each other. Okay. So yeah, here we have a situation where we have more profit than surplus labor. So this shows that the sole determinant of profit is not so surplus labor. Yeah. Over and over again, you know, it requires all the values to be above uh, zero to work. 
So, so basically, uh, he just gives a, another simple example whereby small variations in production and prices can give you negative profit with, with work. The, the, these three paragraphs, I think, are very important. This is Andrew trying to say, like, physicalists have said that, you know, in a case where you had like these, an economy with elements running down production. So say like, you know, we were running down our coal. Okay, we're producing, we're consuming more than we're we're producing. That that economy simply wouldn't be able to reproduce itself because you're running down all these necessary stocks. Okay, so like you might be able to do that on the short term, but that economy will will fall apart. Okay, so let's read about the objections to that. Physicalists instinctively respond to this refutation by denying the relevance of economies in which some physical surplus is negative on the ground that such economies cannot reproduce themselves. This objection is not well-founded. In the first place, it has no bearing on the logical question at issue. If surplus labour and profit could fail to coexist in these economies, even in one period before they run themselves into the ground, and we have seen that they could, given simultaneous dual system definitions, that in itself proves that surplus labor is not the exclusive source of profit. Okay, so in the first place, you know, you only have to get one example to prove it is wrong. And if that's the year before, if that's like the year before everybody dies because of lack of corn, so be it. And then secondly, such economies certainly can and do reproduce themselves. We live in them. They are harvest failures. They are days in which the coal industry produces less coal than the other industries use up and workers consume. They are also commodities that get used up in production and consumed but never reproduced because they are replaced by commodities that serve similar purposes. So think of like old-fashioned typewriters before the word processor came in. People just sold them, they used them up, and they didn't produce any more. Indeed, these latter two phenomena are so common that there is undoubtedly a negative physical surplus of some commodity at every single instant. This right here, footnote 12. Okay, let's go. Kleiman apparently thinks this is one of the most important points. And when I read <laughs> that footnote, I was like, holy shit. So footnote 12 reads, I am indebted to Alan Freeman for emphasizing this crucial point. It shows that economies cannot rigorously be theorized as systems in which inputs are reproduced as outputs. This is like an intuition that I have, that if you do this, it would break like the dynamics of a system. Yes, but that is Shroff's point. Th this was a frigging bomb when I read it. And the reason is this. Shroffians, uh, again, haven't read Strafa's original paper, but like the point is, so why do we equate output and, and, and input prices? It's because an economy has to be able to reproduce itself, right? We have to produce at, at least as much corn as is needed for wages. Otherwise, you know, people will starve and the economy will, will collapse. So every economy has to be able to reproduce itself. Thus, right. the amount of inputs needed and the outputs, they have to equalize because otherwise the economy cannot, cannot reproduce itself. And I here, Kleiman is saying that Freeman's point shows, which in Kleiman speak means logically proves that a reproduction model, it shows that economies cannot rigorously be theorized as systems in which inputs are reproduced as outputs. 
that is a pretty damning critique of most of the Seraphian lineage. Obviously, they don't. <laughs> Some of the inputs never get replaced. They're just inputs. They don't enter product again as outputs. That is the key to the dynamics of, I think, any real economy. Lexi, do you hey. want to have a read of this bit? Hello, Lexi. Yeah, there's some transphobe in the chat that's going to have to get the wall in the revolution. Anyway. The wall is not some like sexual position or something, is it? No, no, no. It's an album <laughs> Roger Waters. Because the fundamental Marxian theorem is a claim about the real world, it would be illegitimate to assume these phenomena away when assessing whether the theorem is true or not. One would be assuming away the very conditions of the problem. It is certainly possible, on the other hand, to put forth a different theorem about hypothetical economies in which all physical surpluses are positive at every moment. Yet such a theorem would also fail to demonstrate that surplus labor is the unique source of profit, even in these hypothetical economies, because something in addition to surplus labor would be needed in order to guarantee that profit is positive. Positive physical surpluses of everything all the time. Some authors, Mohan, Benciani, have objected to my use of, quote, arbitrary values and prices to disprove the fundamental Marxian theorem. This objection is likewise irrelevant to the logical issue at hand if there are any possible sets of prices and values at which surplus labor and profit would fail to coexist, then surplus labor is simply not the exclusive source of profit. Th this this chapter is real analytical Marxism. When I when I talk about something that isn't just a nominal group of scholars and it's a real like approach, I'm talking about using just basic ass analytical logic that you would make any point with and use it to make Marxist points. Here we are. This is why a bunch of scholarship is bullshit. I think it's amazing, like that anybody could could make the point that well, you're just picking certain numbers to make my theorem fail. A theorem. A theorem. To a mark to a to a, a mathematician, that is a hilarious thing. That's right. just like that is hilarious. The fact that you can try and defend a theory by saying, well, you're just picking kind of tricky little values is a fucking joke. You know, that's called joke scholarship. And that is just beyond me. I think it's just disgrace. Absolute scholarly disgrace like if there isn't some misrepresentation like i'm, I'm just trying to think like i've read i've read venetiani's paper I've, I've read it too i've read yeah. it too i don't understand i don't understand like i feel like i'm you know in like a i don't know in a very crazy relationship or something when i'm trying to think about marxian economics and i have to like retreat within myself and like sort of try to like figure out if things are true in a way that I so rarely I, I don't know I find this to be like more mystifying than other factors of like Marxist academic debate I am just I'm puzzled I'm puzzled there's supposed to be objective standards of fucking math here like that's the whole point <laughs> that that's the whole idea of mathematical logic that's the whole idea of mathematics like that you have very cut and dry answers. I don't understand how this vagary could come up. Like this I is do. wrong. Well, I think that would be a a, re a reasonable objection for certain numbers. Like if Andrew said that workers performed negative living labor or capitalists advanced negative capital, right. you know, I think this would be a reasonable objection, but he's making some, he's saying something that's like totally realistic. 
that we just produced less stuff of a product this turnover relative to the last one no that's a very fair point but like i think they're making the opposite of that point because they're they're not saying he 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 picked logically impossible values he just picked you know regular random values to disprove it like if that was their point it would be a fucking watertight point but it's the opposite of their point I just find it disgusting, <laughs> you know, reading yeah. this stuff. That makes me angry. Your model has to be able to, I mean, it has to make, you know, you can't just put any number in there. It has to be a model of the thing that you're trying to model and it has to make sense. But, and Andrew's model, so it totally makes, it makes sense. Yeah. Right. Moving onwards. He has a table here, table 10.1, where he goes through two industries and he shows how over, say, a two-day period, it will reproduce itself. But in each individual day, one of them will have a surplus and one of them will have a, a deficit. He shows that, even, you know, it's pretty common that you would have a deficit on one day and then a surplus in another day. And over the two-day period, the whole thing balances out. And like I know this from when I was uh, used to work with my father in the creamery and we used to be producing milk in a co-op where my father used to work. You would do skim milk, which would be like less than a half percent fat. You take the fat and the cream out of the milk and you would do a batch of skim milk and you do that maybe one day a week and they would sell that skim milk over the over the week. And then on the other days they would produce other types of milk. So every day, one of the stocks is getting run down, but one of them is probably getting run up. And that's just normal production. That is like standard production in factories. Because usually, like factories will produce, one production line can produce many different varieties of the same thing. It's not like they're producing all of these at the same amount at the same time. It's just the opposite of what would go on under capitalism. Um, so what Andrew has shown here is that these things balance out. So the, the production, they might balance each other over two days or four or whatever. And he also goes on to show then if you just have slight variations in the price. However, even the slightest deviation from this equilibrium can cause total profit to be positive despite the lack of surplus labor. If, for instance, the price of apples and broccoli are $100 and $99, then total profit on day one is one dollar and if the prices switch 99 and 100 dollars other way around on day two then total profit is one dollars in that day too over the entire two-day period profit in each industry is one dollar and since the economy reproduces itself it will be possible to have positive profit without surplus labor forever again according to the dual system definitions this is, this is why people like equilibrium theorists, not to drop any names, this is why the equilibrium is so important, because if prices don't tend to equilibrate over time, then climate is right. There can be positive profit without surplus labor forever. But that is why equilibrium theorists really have to go out of their way to, to prove why uh, Kleiman's example here wouldn't apply. You can't even have slight deviations. They always diverge to zero. Okay. Does anybody else want to say anything about this chapter? I don't want to dwell too long on these tables because the right. general gist is very simple to understand. So in, in what I just said there, the in the table 10.1, there is no surplus labor because all output is wages. 
So what are you yep. saying that when you have all output is wages and just slight variations in price deviations, you can end up with profit with no surplus labor forever? Yeah, interest making these theories look really ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, like this is really <laughs> embarrassing. And and these are supposed to be, you know, the new foundations of Marxist theory. I, I guess, Puya, what you were saying and uh, Emmanuel, what you were saying about like the intuitions that go into Shroffianism and the intuitions going into equilibrium theory and like how that sort of structures the intellectual environment has to account for this because this paradigm is, is stupid. It's not like all these people are so dumb. You know what I mean? It's just like they're kind of in this, they're in this methodology that doesn't make sense kind of constitutionally from where we're coming from in, in terms of our intuition. Yeah, I read a little bit of Sarafa's book. It was exactly how Andrew describes it. It's it's very physical. It's it's exactly like Andrew describes it. You know, his his book was the production of commodities by commodities. Isn't that what it is? The reproduction. Yeah, of- yeah. I there mean, it's go. in the name. <laughs> if he would have just titled it "The Production of Use Values by Use Values," I don't think any Marxist would have any beefs with Sarafa <laughs> because. <laughs> Because yeah. it's obviously I, true. I mean, if 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 yeah. you're just looking at use values, it's perfectly true. You get more stuff if you're more productive. More stuff yeah. is more gooder. Yeah, like <laughs> I don't think he's wrong. I just think he's just looking at something else. You know, just he's just looking at the physical economy. Like I don't, yeah, huh. like when he's examining the physical economy, like I, I I haven't like looked at it incredibly carefully, but you know, he might have a point when it comes to just like the economy outside of value production that's interesting oh that's very interesting because like all right even if you're going to be consistent marxist there's no abstract unit of use value right that's not a thing but like you could at least do shroffian math for you know each sector i'm imagining that you can use shroffianism as a parallel discourse to talk about the physical economy but not use it to try to do real value shit and maybe like integrate some of the best parts of it into a broader Marxist project, as long as it doesn't replace the theoretical core. That's interesting. I would have to read it more carefully, but it's kind of hit and miss. But I think it's like, he's just dealing with a different set of issues. And it's just, yeah, he's not dealing with labor values. I remember us actually making a similar uh, point a few episodes ago, when we talked about, you know, Sarafian economics is perfectly true as long as we're dealing with physical outputs and it might be super useful for, I don't know, luxury automated gay-based communism or, or, or something <laughs> wherein we have to calculate, you know, how much corn to produce, etc. But it's right, not, right. It, it's not, it doesn't pertain to the economy in which we live now, where a physical shortage tends to raise prices. Right. And thus also raise profits often. Or um, I think you meant there's a physical shortage. So the amount of labor it takes to produce it. So the price is stay constant, constant as long as the total labor performed is constant. Yeah, I mean, I mean, per unit price. So the that's uh, Marx's uh, quote there from chapter two, that the same amount of labor always produces the same amount of value regardless of any change in productivity. So you're exactly right that the the value produced, the value added by living labor is the same regardless of how many bushels of corn are harvested. But in a shortage, 
since we have performed as much labor, but we've had a lot less bushels of corn, those bushels of corn are going to be more expensive. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was talking about, like, the total price of the corn. Okay, I just got my oranges delivered to me there. Thank you very much, Precious. <laughs> Who is Precious? <laughs> That's my missus. Oh, okay, okay. I sort of imagine she's Keiko O'Brien because Star Trek, but I know she's not. <laughs> oh yeah that's funny yeah i don't look very much like what's his name in real life uh, chief o'brien oh, 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 oh chief miles o'brien but i used to drink in the same pub as him in dublin oh, no, shit. oh really we had the, we had the same uh, we had the same local Bibsborough. that's that's my favorite that's my favorite star trek and marxist trivia right there that's that's the best when it turns out that Chief O'Brien's great great grand granddad was a revolutionary worker <laughs> well, who uh, organized labor strikes, <laughs> and where where Rom says a Ferengi says workers of the world unite, and they oh. quote the Communist Manifesto. It's oh. great. Oh my God! So Tom, that's you. Me. Holy shit! <laughs> that's a bit of a detour. Okay, so we got ten point six. Where basically he goes in and shows the exact same failure, well, a very similar failure, when we look at the FNT version for the new interpretation and the triple SI. Okay. Can we just take a moment to appreciate th this headline? Failure of the NI-SSSIFMT. This is why people hate us. Well, no, we <laughs> promise that we're going to call that the triple SI. Just so it doesn't, it's not literally alphabet soup. All right. So failure of the NI dash triple S I F M T. It's still why people hate oh, us. Much better. <laughs> like if you know what this means, you are one of maybe 12 people who <laughs> who understands this debate. I, it, it's, it's just, I, I'm just, I, I, I just think it's awesome that we actually understand what this is about. People have to think <laughs> we're crazy. None, none of your average socialist probably has even like heard of a transformation problem. I'm just imagining the Girl Scouts like knocking, like, have you heard the good news about the NIISIFMT and how it's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, it just sounds like a really, really fucking complicated wrestling move. So I kind of like the, the sound of it. To me, it sounds like a, like a laptop model or something. I found it actually. I found the picture of the. The actual wrestler move that this one is. Right, let's uh, see this. Shit. <laughs> Let me tell you, that guy he pulled a N9 SIFMT back in '79. Oh, Holy moly! Tom, can you please make this the thumbnail for the episode. <laughs> and, and Photoshop uh, Kleiman's head onto um, the guy taking him down. <laughs> and, and put oh, Seraphim's head on the guy he's taking down. <laughs> This looks very <laughs> pornographic. Uh, all wrestling is. Okay, let's move on. I'm sorry about that detour into my mind. Now, this one incorporates a simultaneous melt. And so this is where the melt is from, is from this context, I think. Those are the people who developed the, the melt at first. Okay, so he gets into the same idea, the physical net product. Okay, so this is similar to what was used in the previous chapter. Okay, so this is total product minus used up input. This is the net product. It doesn't have wages in it, though, this time, for some reason. I don't know why. So one is physical surplus, and this is net product. Okay, slightly different. And then he just gets on to say the total price of the physical surpluses. 
can be negative. So the, just as the total price of the physical surpluses can be negative, so can the price of the net product, so the PNP, the economy-wide total price of all the net products. The PNP is a simultaneous concept because, once again, a unit of coal that enters production at the start of some period is valued at the same price as the unit of coal produced at the end. If there were negative net products of only a few goods, but their prices were relatively high, very high relative to other goods, then the PMP would be negative, okay? So the price of the net product of the entire economy could be negative. Although this is unlikely, it's certainly possible in principle. You know, say, for example, if you had an economy like, I don't know, Saudi Arabia, and there was a massive strike on in the oil sector, you could imagine mm -hmm. the PMP would be negative on a day, you know, so it's not a ridiculous thing. Okay. No, it economy wise, it's it, economy wide. It's quite unusual, but like it's not impossible. So th it's this possibility of a negative PMP, which is causes the NISSI version of the FMT to fail. These interpretations maintain the PMP as the monetary expression of the new value added by workers. I, I don't know. We're going to get into stuff here where we don't really know that much about it, but it fails for the same reason as the previous one, pretty much. Do people but, want to get into it? I, I find, oh, <laughs> we know, like we know the critique and we're going to have a... already covered the melt. We know what simultaneous means, yeah, right? And we, we, we remember the previous examples where having a negative in the wrong place breaks everything. This is just variations on a theme. Maybe we could talk about the table. Go for it. Okay. So when we're talking about the simultaneous melt... It has its price as data, and which is bold. The bold things are the data in the chart. So we have price as data, net product as data, labor as data, and wages as data. Wages and price terms. So what it says is that the profit is equal to the net product minus the wages. And so here we have... Net product, the price of a net product is 100 in the first situation, minus wages, it's 40. And that corresponds to two hours of surplus labor. And the wages correspond to three hours of necessary labor. But in year two, using the simultaneous melt, which is dividing the net product by the total amount of labor performed, so we get a net product of negative 10 because the price of product A fell, and that was such a large proportion of the economy. So we have a price of net product of negative 10. And so when we divide it by five, we get a melt of negative $2 per hour. So what this ends up saying oh. is that with the wage of $60 still, this corresponds to negative 30 hours of necessary labor, labor. and then 35 hours of profit, which corresponds to negative $70 in profit. Andrew also says that, A, this doesn't make any sense because you have negative profit and you have 35 hours of surplus labor, and you also have five hours of total labor and 35 hours of surplus labor. Did you guys get his comment where he was like, our attentive listeners will notice that this is 35 hours of surplus labor and five hours of total labor? I was like, oh, no, I'm not an attentive listener. I didn't notice that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was just, being uh, sarcastic. Oh, really? I, I thought he was like, 
taking a shot at me. I was like, oh man, Andrew, you can't do this to me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't know. I, I usually interpret that kind of stuff from him as you don't have to be Einstein to realize this. Yeah. Read the paragraph here. Attentive readers will have noted that surplus labor in year two, 35 hours, exceeds the total amount of labor performed <laughs> by five hours. This is not an error on my part. Surplus labor is total labor minus variable capital in labor terms. Because the simultaneous melt is negative, so is variable capital in labor time terms. The workers produce an equivalent of their wages in less than no time. Thus, surplus labor is greater than the total labor performed. You know, people might say, oh, well, those values that you assume, the ones in bold in those tables are ridiculous. But I don't think so. Let's say they you really have aren't. Let's say you had, you know, your A and your B. Your A is oil and your B is cars. Typewriters. Typewriters. Take your pick. And we know that like commodities like oil and that can easily crash 50% in a year. They went from $150 a barrel to like, what, $40 a barrel in 2008? Mm -hmm. Something crazy like that. Yeah. You know, and in that kind of a scenario here, in your model economy, you basically end up showing that your theory can't cope with those type of price movements. It just falls on its ass. And it shows that your melt, your simultaneous melt is nonsensical. And so there's something fundamentally wrong with your ideas here. Yeah, like you can't have negative wages, negative necessary negative. labor. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense because it's dependent on the price of a net product, the simultaneous melt. It ends up making completely incoherent predictions. Thanks for the melt, guys. You're welcome. Is that where it came from? Yeah, yeah, it, it comes from them. And so maybe we can, have, we can have a good, plucky, post-Christian Hegelian attitude about it and be like, well, it's a shame we had to go through all this bullshit, but at least we got the melt out of it. <laughs> okay, so now we get to this chapter, which is called Surplus Labor and Profit Under the TSSI. Okay, now, this chapter is laden with some, like if people can see in the screen here, <laughs> it's a bad start. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Like the math is not very difficult. It is pretty much algebra and a few algebraic substitutions and stuff like that. But it, it's kind of tricky to describe it. I think we should talk about the conclusions. Okay, let me talk about what he's going to show here. What, what Andrew is going to show in this chapter is he's going to show that when you use the definitions that the TSSI is based upon, that essentially what Marx is based upon, when you follow through the logic of trying to figure out where the profit comes from, you will find that it consistently will make sense and it will show that the profit is essentially can only and ever be from the amount of surplus labor. And it does also Which, doesn't come to ridiculous conclusions. It's impossible for it to come to ridiculous conclusions. Exactly. It comes to what you would expect them to come to. There are no places where you have to have negative work to maintain the system or, you know, negative prices to maintain it. The prices are positive, labor is positive, and everything works out. I find this interesting. I find this, you know, we talk about Marx. This is what I find kind of very good about this section. 10.7 is that you know i've read capital read a lot of this stuff and you say marx says oh exploitation theory of profit or whatever and you go yeah that makes sense in your head and all that but then when you actually sit down you write the equations and you really don't just go with your kind of common sense mm -hmm. or 
a kind of literary approach. When you sit down and you actually mathematize it up and you follow out the things, that it's entirely coherent. And it really, for me, was very a powerful result. I found this part. It's a pity that it's that mathematical. I, I kind of wish it was in capital, to be honest. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. don't we all? But yeah, this would have been great. But if you think about it, this is sort of the most analytically valuable part of the book. It's showing, you know, if you were going to try to model Marx's theory in a real economy, this is the basic analytic you use to translate between prices and values. Okay, so I don't know if we want to get into any of these equations here because they all work. I've gone through them painstakingly and I think everybody else has too. So this is the, pro the equation we end up with, which is basically the real rate of profit is equal to the melt times the surplus labor performed. And that's the exploitation of theory there in that one equation. When we've done all our messing around. I think it's important to also talk about equation. The nominal rate of profit one. I think this is kind of important that with the TSSI, you can have nominal profit and no surplus labor. But it depends on real the real rate of profit. I thought this was an important point. And that's it, something that we've 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 actually seen before in a non-mathematical sense, haven't we? We've seen it mm -hmm. whereabouts. Let me see if I can find it. Chapter seven, when we were dealing with the falling rate of profit. Do you remember, Emmanuel, when me and you were getting our heads melted trying to figure out the falling rate of profit bit? I remember. And and it was it, it worked out that it was the nominal rate that was kind of throwing us. You could actually have a nominal rate. And you can have no surplus labor. It's the real rate that we're really interested in. Mm, the, yeah, the inflation adjusted rate, which is the output price multiplied by the ratio of the first melt to the new melt. Yeah. The input melt to the output melt. I find that pretty sophisticated to adjust for inflation, but not for time one and time T overall. Like you see, so you still do the thing that simultaneous are claiming that their whole thing is motivated by. They just want to make sure that the measurement, you know, is going to work like that. The, the prices are, are commensurate to make sure that they're in the same kind of dollars. And they do that without adjusting everything, all the prices like this does that without, without doing the sin of simultaneism. It's just, it's really sophisticated. Marx is like kicking ass from the grave. Let this, this one here, he, where he talks about the equation up that we've had here. In the other case, we had the melt being negative, and that's what caused everything to screw up for the NI and the triple SI FMT. But in, in the TSSI one, the only way it could ever fuck up would be if the melt, the, the initial melt, was negative. But that kind of makes no sense. You know, that would mean that when the economy started, the countless economy in northern Italy or whoever you want to call it, 1721, people had to pay to work for somebody else. Yeah, they weren't paid a wage. They paid an, uh, a capitalist so they could go to work <laughs> on the first one. Yeah, yeah. And then from then on, they were always negative. Negative melt. There we go. I mean, if you can't account for that, how can you say you can account for a capitalist economy, Tom? The, what Andrew says is, thus the TSSI, in contrast to all simultaneous interpretations of Marx's value theory, succeeds in deducing his conclusions that surplus labor is the exclusive source of profit that's very that's a real important finding i think for the tssi we've seen that it solves the falling rate of profit it solves the transformation problem and it solves 
the exploitation theory of surplus value or of profit, you know, or whatever we want to call that. And I also what? think it's also is uh, consistent with the text too, the capital. I think it's also consistent with just Marx's work. Like it doesn't re- have to remake his work to work. I mean, this chapter is pretty dense. It's not that long, but I mean, look at even look at the footnotes. I mean, Jesus, we haven't finished it yet. Ten point eight. So oh, in the ten point eight one, it shows how the TSSI is able to handle a case where there is a negative price of net product. So the case where you know the entire economy has run down itself. This happens in recessions, you know. Our GDP can be can drop three percent from the previous year, ten percent, and in that case, you're producing less. If there's not deflation, you will basically be running down your economy in some sense. Andrew goes through here and shows that when you do that, when you adjust for the rate of inflation, the negative PMP doesn't cause the whole thing to fall apart and it it stays true. Does anybody want to read the conclusion here? Alexi, you're very good at reading. Sure, but I'm warning you, there's some French names and there's not going to be any French names by the time I'm done with them. So, Lexi, why do you think I asked? Thank you. Owing to their static character, simultaneous interpretations of Marx's value theory grant no role in explaining the dynamics of capitalism. Although some proponents of simultaneous interpretations have acknowledged this fact, they seem untroubled by it. Dumanil and Levy, for instance. Dumanil. Okay, Dumanil and Levy for instance, ha 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 and ha ha ha. For instance, contain, <laughs> uh, for instance, contend that, quote, the core of the explanatory power of the labor theory of value lies in the analysis of exploitation as the origin of profit. Other theories also exist independently of labor value, such as a theory of crisis or of historical tendencies. In particular, the labor theory of value does not provide the framework to account for disequilibrium and dynamics in capitalism, as this chapter has shown, however. The attempts to fragment Marx's value theory into static and dynamic aspects and to embrace the former but jettison the latter have not succeeded. When his value theory is interpreted in static terms, it is not only his explanations of dynamic issues, like the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, that seem false. His explanation of the origin of profit, a putatively static issue, seems false as well. Conversely, the TSSI, which vindicates the internal consistency of Marx's value theory in other respects, also vindicates the logical coherence of his exploitation theory of profit. His value theory is far more of a, quote, package deal than has hitherto been recognized. I think that's really like that bit here. When the value theory is interpreted in static terms, it's not only his explanation of dynamic issues like the tendency of rate of profit to fall, his explanation of the origin of profit, a putatively static issue seems false as well. Like that's kind of curious, really, when you think about it. Well, it's it's pretty. It is really interesting that you can't remake the fundamentals of his theory. It's like a credit to his theory in a way that, like, you need it to construct his world. Like, there's not other tools to construct this world, and he's not using some something like I don't know, obviously weird and dumb to get to like these conclusions. And so it's not. It's not something that I think makes his method questionable that he comes to these conclusions. It's a, it's a credit to him that he's done something that you can't like replicate very easily. Marx has a tremendously weird theory in that respect. I don't know. Most theories you can kind of reconstruct in different ways, but here, once you lose that main mechanism, it is very hard to 
use all the sticky tape for an ad hoc recreation of one of the elements without the others. They really are a, a theoretical totality. It's kind of it's kind of amazing to me though, like that. You know, I know we followed the whole book, but it's still kind of amazing that the origin of profit is somehow intrinsically linked to the dynamic time yeah. level of capital. That's a weird result. It's tremendously mm -hmm. weird, and it is exactly that kind of Popperian or Lakatoshian like kind of like small buy-in, big dynamic outcomes. Like that's sort of the irony of all that. You know, that kind that that section of philosophy of science. I think if you really take Marx's value theory on its own terms, you actually do have a theory with low buy-in and high cash value, you know, if you'll excuse the metaphor. I just think that's a obviously there's something deep about time when it comes into the trying to analyze the economy that it even affects static issues like exploitation. And that's just a very fundamentally non-intuitive finding I think from this chapter. Yeah. The people that that don't do the math of Marx's value theory, I think, are, are missing what makes it tie together. I think people can logically understand what makes it tie together without going through all this. But when you kind of realize you, there's not like very many ways to like represent this theory, li like literally, it's not just a matter of the, the word games go together in history. Like there's a theoretical core. I think it's underappreciated yeah. because I think that whole section of, of analysis is pretty much choked off and brain dead in most Marxist circles. You made a great point there the other day when I was editing and I was re-listening to it and it really got me, was when you were saying, you know, about how when it comes to the falling rate of profit, you can't reproduce it at the macro level. It's this weird small micro level dynamic that when you get rid of it, it can't be reduced. The theory kind of falls apart. And, you know, that's, it says something that yeah. there is something kind of indisputable about how Marx has created value. This essence of value, which is wrapped up in labor time, price, use value, the whole thing, that it's fundamentally core and you cannot get rid of it, or you're going to end up with economic systems which cannot replicate economic system from their abstractions. This is yeah. the only abstraction that works, and we can't jettison it. Yeah, this chapter proves what I was saying there, is that it, you can't jettison the micro-phenomena and keep the macro-phenomena. It's Correct. like, if you observe the macro-phenomena, there's not really another set of you know consistent tools that will bring you there. Like, there are a bunch of inconsistent stuff, essentially. That's what it seems like. If what's happening is impossible... <laughs> If in the models, technical change and, you know, lowered outputs are impossible, which I got to imagine there's some like really dank bong rip grad school, like neoclassical stuff. That's like, okay, we have to, we have to face facts here. And I don't know. I imagine somewhere, somebody somewhere, some post Keynesians, maybe I just can't imagine how you would like recreate the macro phenomenon without this. It's very hard to understand otherwise. And when Marxists did, and this is what this this is what this proves, right? When Marxists took this project on, well, first of all, they didn't acknowledge the falling rate of profit. They followed their models and saying that it wasn't true. So they're dealing with really a different problem. But in addition, at any attempt to recreate even, you know, the less the less controversial elements of, of Marx's value theory was a failure. It couldn't reproduce them. 
if you're on board with the macro phenomena or a lot of the description of Marxist capital, you kind of have to take this stuff seriously as a, a mechanism. It's not just a critique. I think if Marx was alive today, he would think classical political economy is more clairvoyant into what's happening than the stuff we deal with today in, in academia. Like, I, I don't think it's just him using bourgeois categories, but, but he doesn't care about them. You know, I think he, you know, made a scientific contribution. And it's a shame if scientific socialists don't appreciate that. Puya, what did you make of it? Did you like it? Yeah, I thought it was great. This was my favorite chapter so far. Mostly because I thought Andrew, this 10.7 was very clear, made everything so much easier. <laughs> Emmanuel, I know you're smoking your pipe and having a thrash, thrashing argument in, in the chat, but do you have any short final few words on this chapter before we wrap up? I think this chapter does a really good job in distinguishing capitalism specifically, profits specifically, money profits specifically, the thing that we care about in capitalism specifically from just building up silos of grain so that we have more if there's a famine. The former is the type of exploitation that we should care about. It's certainly the type of exploitation that Marx cared about. Whether or not we can produce surpluses of good stuff or surpluses of computers or surpluses of commodities is a very different thing from producing monetary profits. I think it does a great job of explaining that difference and why the contradiction between physical surpluses and value surpluses is what is fundamental and specific to the capitalist mode of production. If we create more stuff and more use values for people, then capitalists aren't going to be happy. Conversely, if there is shortages of things, then people aren't going to be happy, but capitalists are. And that's one of the fundamental points about capitalism. And I think Kleiman does a very uh, articulate job in explaining that difference and why value and use value are two different things. If Schraffer was around in the Incas time, he would have been a great economist because they had no money. They used to do literally create stores of stuff and they delivered stuff and everything was about the production of the commodities and the, the value form didn't operate. So yeah, like he's I, an I excellent think, uh, theorist of Aztec or uh, of Inca economics, but not capitalist. I think even he could be a great economist of Star Trek, you know, Federation economics. Mm -hmm. uh, how many how many intrepid class starships should we produce? Um, 20. What? It's no, no, 21. <laughs> 21. 21. No, no, yeah. no, wait, 25. Let's go 25. Starfield economics is, is, is great for planning production and things like that in a, in a very abstract way if use values are the only thing that we care about. The problem with capitalism is precisely that value is removed from use value. That's, that's the socialist struggle. And it's clear in this chapter what we need to do and why the implications of this whole value-use-value distinction, why, why that is one of the most fundamental and most important things in political struggle. Okay, on that note, I think we'll 
wrap it up for today. Thanks for everybody in the chat. Except, some, except for that guy. Fuck that guy. For doing some Holy transphobic shit. stuff. So uh, up against the wall with you. That's what uh, Judge Lexi says. Commissar Lexi. Commissar Lexi. Sorry. Sorry. Iron, <laughs> Iron Lexi, as I'm known. You'd only be a district court judge. I'd be Supreme Court judge. <laughs> Emmanuel would be a parking ticket collector. Pilia <laughs> would actually be unemployed. I know it's impossible, but he would be unemployed in the economy in the future. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'd be the everybody. one unemployed person. <laughs> yeah, next year, unemployable as well. Chapter 11 next week, we have the empirical defense of the law of value. So we're going to need people to read up on their regression analysis. I haven't done a regression analysis oh, yeah. in about 20 years. So I actually need to do a little research. But this chapter I found really, really good. Cool, Tom. I can, I can, uh, I can use my parking ticket income to uh, give you a few lectures on, on regression analysis and, and, and how it works. Uh, because yeah, I yeah. know all about the... Um, correlations between uh, rush hour and, and parking tickets so that's well this is why you're this is why you are a parking ticket it's, just a, it's, a, it's an efficient allocation of resources under our planned economy you see perfect yeah, what would my job be then what do you what what, what do you reckon like let's well, have a vote on what my you're, job is chief officer tom o'brien chief you know come on chief chief marxist asshole <laughs> yeah, chief uh, ship talker. <laughs> ship talker. Transporter <laughs> engineer uh, Tom O'Brien. Yeah, chief. Um, chief. Uh, just, just chief overlord. I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> um, chief I'm lord of the lord of, lord, our, lord of the uh, dance. Lord of the dance, Tom O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> right, everybody. Good luck and thanks for listening. Will we get a big group goodbye? Yes. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.